Thanks for tuning into the Car Tech Garage, everyone. This is This Week in Automotive History. We're going to be talking about February 14th through the 20th. Max, how are you? I'm doing great. I'm, I'm ready for some history. I got my, my pen and notebook right here. I'm going to start taking some notes. No, he doesn't. <laughs> <laughs> All right, let's go ahead and kick it off. February 14th, 2014, a pretty recent one, but a car that I really like. Just seven years ago, the Hennessy Venom GT recorded a top speed of 270 miles an hour um, at Kennedy Space Center. They have a, a three and a quarter mile um, shuttle landing strip there. Um, so it didn't actually qualify for an official top speed record because it was only one way. And obviously with land speed racing, you have to go one way and then the same way back within an hour of the, of the runs to make it count. Um, but it really wasn't going to count either way because it was a single direction. They had only, you know, sold, I think, 16 cars at that point, 15 or 16 cars. Um, and then to qualify for a production car in that respect, you know, Hennessy would have had to have built at least 30 by that time and then did the record. So it didn't qualify as the world's fastest production car in the Guinness Book. Um, but you know, in the hearts and minds of Americans, I think it did. Yeah, it definitely <laughs> did. Yeah. But, um, it, the, for those of you who don't know, and I'm sure most of you guys do that Hennessy Venom GT is a beast. It's basically a heavily modified Lotus Exige chassis. It looks so good. It's so good. But, that was, uh, I think one of the, the first kind of supercars that wasn't your, you know, run on the mill Lamborghini, mm-hmm. any of those, you know, everybody sees, even if you're a 10 year old kid, you it know, what a Lamborghini bonkers. or Ferrari is, but you see this Hennessy. Oh, it was bonkers. It was different than anything on the road. And then it was faster than anything on the road by, by a long shot. So you still have to register it mm-hmm. as a Lotus Exige. <laughs> See, what's crazy is if for anybody that doesn't know about Hennessy, they make some insane stuff Indeed. there. I mean, obviously now they've they've progressed, but you know, even a few years ago, I think the coolest thing that I saw that they made, which really not that cool, they would do like a whole tune-up and basically overpower your Suburban and Tahoes. Well, they do that on the Escalades yeah. now, too. And Hennessy like, Escalades or Suburbans. 500, 600, 700. And now, uh, now they're like 1,000 plus. Yeah. yeah. So it's you getting can, crazy You nowadays. can get groceries pretty fast. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so um, the, the, what, the car weighed 2,700 pounds. The cool part, um, even way back then, the, the front rotors were 15-inch carbon ceramic uh, rotors Jeez. provided by Surface Transforms. So it's the same company that makes those... Um, uh, you know, carbon fiber rotors for Koenigsegg. Mm-hmm. And instead of having, you know, like chopped or layered carbon fiber, they have this continuous carbon fiber matrix, they call it. It's like a, a carbon fiber frame that they fill with ceramic. Um, and it makes the rotors, you know, far superior than yeah. most of the other I'm competition. Not, I'm not an engineer, but, you know, when I think of, you know, carbon fiber, I think of a wing or something. And they're really not that strong. But when you, you know, well, they're created in the correct way and yeah. form it correctly. It depends on how you layer it and everything. Yeah. And it, carbon fiber is able to be used for so many different purposes. And um, I never knew that. That was something I've truthfully learned, you know, within oh, yeah. the last five years or so. I just thought, oh, it's just, you know, a cheap wing that you put on the back, just an expensive material. But exactly. And and, and it's you know more difficult to work with than a lot of other other. Yeah, you have to be very exactly very good with it. But now to, they got wheels made out of it and everything else. So that's <laughs> awesome. So um, yeah, the Hennessy Venom. Back to that, a seven liter LSX. It's not not the um, not the one in the Z06, but an actual LSX. You know uh, the GM Crate engine, four twenty seven, over twelve hundred horsepower, gobs of torque. Um, and the other cool part, it was mated to a Ricardo six speed manual which was the same transmission setup used in the Ford GT. So, I mean, this car's so, yeah, already... I mean, they, they contracted the, <laughs> yeah. the right parts out of this. Um, and, of course, now they've got the new Venom F5, which is Hennessy's newest and most bonkers creation. Sure. An updated model with over 1,800 horsepower. Like, 
when will it stop? Well, must be must be nice to be those guys and just all right. What are we gonna do today? Let's make something insanely fast and crazy and build it correctly. Really, I mean, keep keep doing it. Hopefully, it doesn't end. I mean, I I don't want to get off this ride because they're still technically considered um, production cars, correct? What is the Hennessy? They're um, oh, I don't know. I think isn't there Venom F five? I think that's supposed to be a production car because that, a that's bunch. a total one off. But yeah, the 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 Venom GT never actually made it to production car it didn't, status. Okay. No. All right, taking a little bit forward, February 15th, 1913, 108 years ago, Mr. Percy Lambert became the first man to exceed 100 miles an hour in one hour. Or sorry, to exceed, I messed that up, to exceed 100 miles in one hour. (laughs) (laughs) Obviously, they didn't have radar guns back then, so this guy actually literally had to drive 100 miles within one hour of time. Oh, wow. And he was driving a a four and a half liter, they called it the Invincible Talbot. Um, which was a, a Talbot motor car, and they did this at Brooklyn's. But it was a huge publicity stunt for Talbot. Um, and the cool part was it was pretty a uh, pretty normal chassis. It had a four and a half liter engine, and this was at a time when you know the only other attempts on land speed records or speed records in general that had even come close were like monster race cars, usually ten liters of engine displacement or more. Um, of course, now all the little known, the first car to actually travel 100 miles an hour was actually back in 1904 in France. Um, but he didn't go a full mile. He actually did a, a kilometer in 22 seconds. That just blows my mind. I'm still stuck on it. The fact that, you know, nowadays we do, you know, eighth mile, quarter mile, and, you know, drag racing, mm-hmm. where then if somebody would have told me like, hey, we want you to drive as fast as you can for an hour. <laughs> it just sounds like the coolest thing ever. Yeah. So obviously the it wasn't really a record, but he had to go the full mile. Like, you know, he did 100 miles in one hour. Whatever, my Camry's faster. <laughs> um, all right. Uh, February 16th, 1967. This was a really cool story. So 54 years ago, um, Mario Andretti won the Daytona 500. Now, during Mario Andretti's short time in NASCAR, he was a force to be reckoned with, as were Holman Moody's Ford Fairlanes, or at least Fred Lorenzen's was, which was Mario's teammate. Now, here's where the thing gets interesting. Now, Mario, being a newcomer to NASCAR and a newcomer to the United States, he'd only gotten his citizenship, I believe, in 64. Um, He wasn't very well received by many people within NASCAR, not even his own team. So not only was he given underpowered engines at first, which he still, you know, bucked up, raced with, still kept up with the field by he actually cut his rear spoiler an inch lower just to gain a few miles an hour up top. Um, so he, he had to kind of play some tricks on the car just to keep up with the, with the field. So during the uh, qualifying for the event, he ended up raising a huge issue with Ford. And finally, they obliged. They gave him the same engine setup that Lorenzen had in his car. So he was equal on engine power, but they wouldn't allow him to modify the car apart from the engine. Um, so, you know, he basically raced this entire time and he won. He ended up winning, but a few laps on his last pit stop his very last pit stop. And and meanwhile, Mario Andretti is, you know, crushing everybody with that rear spoiler cut lower. He didn't have much traction. So a lot of people say drifting was invented in 1967 with Mario Andretti (laughs) slinging this Ford Fairlane around. Um, So the last pit stop, the pit crew actually held his car up on jack stands for over four seconds longer than needed just so his teammate got out in front. They literally tried to sabotage the race at the very end of it, and he still came around. Gave him all the smoke show. I can tell you love (laughs) love Mario Andretti. I just like people that, you know, 
you know, stick to their guns and, and just want to win at all costs. That know? had to be That's a really interesting is. time, you know, coming over here as the foreigner because what he was in Formula One at the time, oh, correct? Yeah. Yep. Well, he, he was in Formula One a little bit later. Later. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. But still, you know, coming in here, being the foreigner, going into, you know, NASCAR, mm-hmm. which is obviously, you know, the, the, people behind it and what they're doing and you come over here and dominate, you know, being oh, yeah. the foreigner, I mean, never w- been in the United the States. One of the greatest racing drivers ever, for sure. In fact, about this race, because he basically drifted the whole race, he was actually quoted saying, I don't think I turn left that whole race. <laughs> <laughs> he said that it would constantly go from neutral to over to neutral to oversteer, neutral to oversteer. <laughs> so, um, his, he, and, and, a Many many accolades with Mario Andretti. His Indy 500 came when er, his Indy 500 win uh, came in 1969. He did win a Formula One World Championship here in that 1978, and um, he also won a class win at the 24 Hours of Le Mans '95. I mean, he's he's one of very few drivers to to have this many wins under his belt, especially in all those different racing disciplines. Yeah. And that's, you know, a feat in itself for, you know, nowadays you see a lot of guys jumping back and forth between, you know, different styles of racing, but back then to make those such a large jump into a different one, and it was a way different time, you know, Mm -hmm. things weren't what they are today. That just is amazing that he could go and be so dominant. You know, yeah, like in you these could tell he was on a mission. Like uh, he was like, yeah. I'm going to win this one and I'm going to go win this I'm one. I'm going to win it all, all of yeah. it. Every single time. Um, all right. So we'll go ahead and move forward a little bit. February 17th, 1974, 47 years ago, Richard Petty won his fifth Daytona 500. I'm going to be talking about NASCAR a little bit this week. <laughs> Gotta love NASCAR. So uh, during the start of the 1974 NASCAR season, many races actually had their distance cut short 10% because of the energy crisis in 74 and 73. Um, so as a result, the race was shortened to 180 laps or 450 miles. So they actually started the race on lap 21, and this race is often, you know, jokingly known as the Daytona 450, but (laughs) (laughs) Richard Petty was indeed the king of stock car racing. I mean, his numbers speak for themselves, being far above any other NASCAR driver in terms of, you know, race wins and things like that. I mean, really, I doubt anyone will beat his records either. I mean, NASCAR at that time was a different sport. Mm-hmm. You know, today's all, today all the cars are truly about as equal as they could be. But back in the 60s and 70s, there were plenty of ways to get around tech without them noticing and, you know, basically bring a machine to the race that was untouchable. And that's often what Richard Petty was accused of, and he pretty much did. <laughs> but there's indeed some truth to that, obviously. Mm-hmm. Well, you got to think, you know. I was never a huge fan of NASCAR. Didn't like it. Didn't have enough turns for me. You know, I was just like, it's boring. They go in a circle. Well, you got to think that, you know, with a Daytona 500, that's 500 miles. So they're going at speeds anywhere from what, 150 to 200 miles an hour um, for 500 miles, not just, you know, around the track who can get around it the fastest, but doing that for, you know, in a long extended period of time. That's why NASCAR is the way it is, and it's just so crazy that even, you know, back then, 60s, 70s, they were doing this, that they didn't have the technology that oh, we have no. nowadays, and that's that's scary going that fast and, you know, well, that's, a huge That's what circle. everybody says. You know, driving in a circle isn't all that hard, but that's what makes it so much harder to do it better than anybody else does. Yeah, it's an equal, <laughs> equal playing ground. Exactly. Yeah, but, you know, I guess if Petty had had the same type of or or same performance, you know, cars like the same level of equipment as the rest of the field, I don't think he would have been as successful. 
I mean, he, I mean, he was still a great driver, but he certainly wouldn't have had what he has today. But hey, yeah, it, it it's evens, a history. It evens it out pretty well when, you know, most of the cars are, are basically the same setup, just a, a little bit different body line. Yeah, he... he and stretched, <laughs> stretched as much as he could. Oh, yeah. He definitely had more power than the rest of the field on, on many occasions. Like, he would basically, you know feather the pedal to let people keep up with him and he pulled away. <laughs> All right. So February 18th, 2001, 20 years ago, um, a solemn place, Mr. Dale Earnhardt senior at just 49 years young died in a last lap crash at the Daytona 500. So the famous number three black Chevrolet, he got hit from behind. He spun out, crashed head on into the outside wall at 180 miles an hour. So Earnhardt was actually the, the 27th driver to die at Daytona since the track had opened in 59. Um, you know, I mean, he was, and he was one hell of a driver, man. I mean, his, he had like this tough, aggressive driving style. That's mm-hmm. why actually why he's called the intimidator, because that's how he got yeah. that name by intimidating people on track when he drove tough. Um, you know, he was involved in another crash in Daytona in 97, uh, where people thought he was going to die because his car flipped upside down on the backstretch, but you know, he managed to escape. Um, he actually won the event in 98. Um, you know, which was a, a it was his first and only victory in that race, and he had been trying for almost twenty years. Um, and Earnhardt's story is such a humbling one. I mean, he's a high school dropout, really humble beginnings in North Carolina, and even from a kid, he was always quoted saying all he wanted to do in life was race cars and go fast. Man, that sounds like me. So yeah. Does that mean that I'm going to be a good race car driver one day? No, sorry, uh, that that ship it. has sailed. <laughs> but he went on to become one of the sport's most successful and respected drivers. 76 crew victories. He's got seven Winston Cup Series championships. I mean, the guy could drive, no he doubt about dominated. it. dominated. Oh, yeah. No question. Yeah. But anyway, sad that he was gone too soon. All right, uh, February 19th, 1928, 93 years ago. So driving the British built and designed 12 cylinder, 22.3 liter Bluebird. About hold on, 400. Hold on. Yeah. 22.3? It was 1928, buddy. Okay. Bef- before the war, Jeez. these engines were just massive. But all of that just to make about 450, 500 horsepower. At least that's what they said. <laughs> but this was at Daytona Beach. Um, Malcolm Campbell established a new world land speed record of 206.96, almost 207 miles an hour. The first time the 200-mile-per-hour barrier had been broken. Of course, it only took a few short months for it to be broken again. Um, We're an interesting species, aren't we? We're so willing to risk life and limb for fame and glory. I know. You you don't really think about it, but... Nah. Sometimes, sometimes you do like that's, no, you know, it's just fun going fast. <laughs> Don't make hopping. it sound cooler than it is. <laughs> Speed has always been something I, you know, just everything doesn't matter at that point. Once you start getting up there. Yeah. You can toss the fame and glory out the window at 200 miles an hour. Yeah, I'm having no, fun. It doesn't matter anymore. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, the, the really cool thing, Malcolm Campbell and Henry Seagrave, um, these two guys, you know, the, dominated land speed racing. They're both Brits. Um, for decades, basically in, up until World War II broke out, these guys you know, were going back and forth, battling on salt flats and beaches and all this stuff, just trying to edge each other out. Um, and together, you know, or rather opposing each other, they set many, many records. Um, it's, it's just amazing. You know, I'm a huge sports fan and I love sports, you know, basketball, football, you name it. When it comes to sports, you know, you have to be, you know, the biggest, the most athletic, have extreme talents. We're driving it kind of takes out that part of it. You know, you don't That's have to be six you foot never, seven. You can never tell who the best driver in the yeah. room is. You, you might be able to be, look around a room and see who can dunk a basketball or who can, you know, be the best, you know, O lineman. But 
when you look around a room, you have no idea. The, the, the kid sitting next to you that's never even hopped in a car could potentially be the next F1 great. You yeah. just don't know. You, you have no idea. Or as the joke like I was fighter made, pilots. you don't know who this dig is, you know, from Top Gear. You don't know. <laughs> he might be in the room with us right now. I have no idea. They say he's everywhere and nowhere. <laughs> it's too fast for everyone. All right, moving ahead, because we're kind of running out of time here. February 20th, 1909, 112 years ago, uh, was when the Hudson Motor Car Company was founded. Now, I won't go into the long history of Hudson, although it is pretty interesting, uh, but they're most famous for their impact on NASCAR racing, you know, um, even though they were obviously around long, long before. But in 1948, Hudson introduced their monobuilt design. So that consisted of a chassis and a frame that were combined, and the passenger compartment was actually built down into the frame, not on top of it. So this made the car lighter, stronger, and gave it a much lower center of gravity than all of its competitors. Um, Hudson actually called it the step-down design because for the first time, you actually had to like step down into the car. So that's huh. what they coined the step-down design. Okay. And in 1951, Hudson used that design to introduce their Hornet. Now, the Hornet was fitted with a, a bigger engine than the previous Hudson models, and it quickly became a dominant force in stock car racing. So, you know, on the NASCAR circuit, for the first time, the the races were not constantly won by the big three, and it was it was a huge upset for them. So in 1952, Hudson actually won 29 out of the 34 events. That's impressive. I mean, that is a big spread. Um, they just crushed them. And, um, you know, they, after that successful year, Hudson actually began directly backing their racing teams, you know, providing like teams and cars with everything they needed. Um, and unfortunately the big three responded very quickly and in doing so it brought about the system of industry backed racing that has become a really prominent marketing tool today. You know, all the, the livery on cars and everything like that, tons of sponsorship money. Um, you know, the Hudson Hornet dominated NASCAR basically up until 1955, um, when rule changes, obviously lobbied by the big three, placed much more of an emphasis on horsepower because, mm-hmm. you know, at this point, um, you know, 55, uh, you know, Chrysler had their 300, um, which was like the first 300 horsepower car. So big V8 power was kind of right on the cusp of, of it. And, um, you know, they put a much larger emphasis on horsepower over handling and the Hudson just kind of fell to the wayside after cars got better. Yeah, you know, it happens. Yeah. But anyway, that's been this week in automotive history. I hope you guys have enjoyed. Yeah. Also, I I do want to say, you know, we have hit 200 downloads, which, you know, may not seem like a a bunch, but but I really want to thank you guys for, you know, tuning in. Um, listening to our podcast, even if you listen to our radio show as well, you know, we're super thankful for it. Absolutely. We're um, so grateful. We're two car nerds that love talking about cars. So we're and just, we'd love to keep doing it. Yeah. So if you guys can listen, download, support us in whatever way you, you'd be comfortable with. Yeah. We or if would you're an older be, guy and you've got a, a grandson that, you know, is starting to like cars a little bit, you know, send them our way. Yeah. Keep them interested. Keep That's cars it. interesting. That's all we want. Yeah. Well, again, thanks, everybody. Uh, thanks for listening to the Car Tech Garage and you guys take care. All right. You've been listening to the Car Tech Garage. Tune in next week for more of your favorite automotive content in partnership with Allmers Auto Care in Cincinnati, Ohio.